Welcome to the podcast, Canadian Culture. I'm host Rhea Beaumont. In this episode, we have with us a legendary Canadian filmmaker known for the iconic feature film, Going Down the Road. It won many accolades and is still ranked as one of the top 10 Canadian films ever made. This year marks its 50th anniversary. It's the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Directors Guild of Canada. And I'm so pleased to introduce writer and director Don Shabib. Hello, Don, and thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. People have been talking about your film since it was made in 1970, which is huge. It's continued to influence filmmakers and movies, and it's a unique work, a feature film, but with a narrative story and the feel of a documentary. Yep. For listeners who haven't seen the film, basically it's about two young men from the Maritimes on the East Coast who drive to Toronto looking for work. Can you tell us a bit about the film? Uh, It was very low budget, but it has great music by Bruce Coburn, interesting cinematography, and many things about it are quintessentially Canadian, and yet the themes are very universal, I would say. Well, it is a universal theme. It's basically country mouse, city mouse. Uh, in some way, I was influenced by um, John Ford's film in the 30s, The Grapes of Wrath, which was about the Okies moving to um, California in the 1930s after uh, the Dust Bowl. And so it's a similar situation. My family, my dad was born in Cape Breton, and my mother was born in Newfoundland, and they came to Toronto in the late 1930s uh, when I was born. Uh, so, uh, and Maritimers have been coming to Toronto for many years, uh, off and on. Uh, for also many years, they went to Boston. There, there was a, a very huge connection between the Maritime provinces and Boston. Uh, people in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and Newfoundland, their favorite hockey team was not the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was the Boston Bruins. It was primarily filmed in Toronto, wasn't it? It was filmed all in Toronto. It was very low budget. Uh, I mean, it was made for basically $19,000, which was a lot more money in those days, but also you couldn't do uh, things like on your iPhone the way you can today. So making a film then was more expensive, in in effect, than it is today, Uh, which has a good thing about it and a bad thing. The good thing is that some talented people can make films, and the bad thing is that there's thousands of films being made, and good films, which are one in a hundred, can easily get lost. As you said, everyone has an iPhone, but not everyone is a director or an excellent storyteller. And you do that. You tell wonderful stories. They have what I would call a gritty Canadian element to them. And being Canadian, I can appreciate that. A lot of Canadian literature, film, and music has a sense of struggle as an element. Would you say that's what gives this particular film its appeal, as opposed to glossier Hollywood films, perhaps? Well, it, it had a rough quality to it because it was the nature of, of having making a low-budget film. There, the crew was only myself and three other people. Uh, I don't think even low-budget films today, they have 40 or 50 people on the cast or the crew. Uh, we had three, and myself, and that was it. So the whole film was made by f- myself and Richard Leiterman, the cameraman, and uh, Jim McCarthy, the sound man, and another guy I just got plugged at a university who 
had uh, never had any experience at all. So it was made, uh, you know, on the run. Um, a lot of it was scripted. Some of it was ad lib, but most of it was scripted. I had two wonderful actors. Well, I had a lot of wonderful actors, but two wonderful actors playing the leads. And uh, there is a very thin line, but a line between the characters, uh, Pete and Joey, and in, in going down the road that really starts with um, Laurel and Hardy. And it goes through uh, Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton, uh, uh, Jackie Gleason, in the 1950s uh, uh, television series, The Honeymooners. And is Bob and Doug McKenzie on the Canadian uh, SC, SCTV. And uh, it comes into uh, today, these same kind of characters. Uh, and these guys are all from the same wacky buddies. And uh, and they're a film about two guys that many people would not be interested in. And I, uh, through the help of Bill Fruitt's script, got people interested in liking these and being sympathetic towards these characters that normally they would not spend the time of day with. Yeah, the cast is amazing. Jane Eastwood, Cale Shernan, Doug McGrath, and Paul Bradley. Can you tell us a bit about the cast? What was it like working together? I would think you'd get to know each other pretty well, working in such small quarters. Well, I, I was lucky to, uh, you know, to, to be a good filmmaker, you have to be good, but you also have to be awfully lucky. There are lots of talented filmmakers who've never been lucky. Uh, I was lucky the first time out, and... I was lucky being blessed by finding these actors and the two, Cale uh, uh, Chernin and, and uh, Jane Eastwood, who played the two f- female parts. Uh, I was lucky to get them. And uh, and I had my uh, been making films on my own for 10 years at that point. So I was an experienced filmmaker. And, uh, and it was a good script. It was a script that about people struggling against odds to make a life for themselves as many Maritimers have in this city because it is, uh, you know, a, a, a impoverished area of Canada and has been for years. Uh, and so it was, a, like I said, it's a standard story and it had a lot of humor in it. Um, and uh, I think the, Endings of the film, which are sad and and uh, uh, tragic in some way, uh, you get through those because there was so much fun in the first part of it. Well, there's also a sequel that you made to the movie, isn't there? I did. I made a sequel in 2011 with uh, Paul Bradley, who played the character Joey, who had passed away 10 years ago. So... The story was a, a, a happening at the, on the beginning of his death as a character and his be uh, his final request for Pete to get the old car out of Hawk and drive his ashes back to Cape Breton, and so Pete uh, gets the car out of sitting in some old garage where it had been for twenty years and gets it fixed up and drives to Cape Breton and with. Joey's uh, daughter, 
who who has sort of conned Pete into letting her go with him. And it's not a romantic uh, combination between Pete and Joey's daughter, but it is a coming together of spirits. And uh, so it's another kind of road movie, and it has a lot of reverberation back to the original film. And Jane Eastwood and Cale Chernin are now in their fifties and sixties, but when they were before, when they were in their twenties, this is forty years after, and uh, so it's uh, it's a film about growing old as well. As you said, there are universal themes in this story. It, which takes an interesting turn, and I thought the scene with the ashes was beautifully crafted. Made it about the same time in 1969 was Good Times, Bad Times, entirely different in every way. It's a documentary narrated by John Granick, and it won the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television Award for Best Feature-Length Documentary. This film has actual wartime footage that's interwoven with interviews with the veterans. It's a very powerful film. Can you tell us a bit about what inspired you to make it and what the context is for it? Well, I made that in 1969, 68, the fall of 1968. And it's a film about old veterans from both World War I and World War II. It was made at a time when the the country was filled with anti-war sentiment. I was certainly against the war in Vietnam, but also that sentiment, you know, was anti-old soldiers and there were a bunch of drunks in the Legion and uh, a lot of disrespect for them. And uh, this is the best film I've ever made. And it's, uh, I no hesitation in saying it's one of the greatest documentary films ever made anywhere by anyone. The founder of the National Film Board, uh, said it was the greatest Canadian documentary film. Yes, very high praise from John Grierson, who coined the term documentary. But it's a very, very unusual film. It's not like most documentaries. It's really a piece of film poetry. Yeah, it's a beautiful tribute to the vets. It really is a wonderful documentary. As with Going Down the Road, this film also has an interesting use of music, although the genre is very different. In Going Down the Road, it was folk, but here you use classical. Can you link the two films with their musical ideas that you have in them? Well, music's always played a big, important part in any of my films, and I'm not a musician myself. I can't play a single note of anything. But I do have, uh, I think, a deep understanding of how it works. And a lot of the music in, uh, there's like... 20 pieces of music in uh, Good Times, Bad Times uh, with old songs and also Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings plays a huge part in the film. These are very important. And one of the things I do in all my films is I always have a musical section where the characters become introspective and think about who and where they are. And it gives the audience a chance to come you think and and reflect on where the characters are from their point of view. So I think it's a it's a standard thing in in uh, all of my films, and uh, I think I you know one can see all my films and, and and find a thread of the kind of music I've used, and it's not necessarily 
classical music. Sometimes it's rock and roll and doo-wop and all kinds of crazy combinations. Yes, Going Down the Road featured music by Bruce Coburn. Bruce Coburn wrote the music. I originally cut it to records. Just, you know, I, I remember using um, some of um, Ian Tyson. Yes, yeah, so and uh, so I used some of his music because uh, of our temporary track. And then I showed the film to uh, Bruce and uh, he plugged into what, what it was about and uh, wrote an original score for it, which was very, very effective. And the, you know, one of the most effective pieces in the film is uh, music by Eric Satie, the gymnopédie that he listens to in the record store with this beautiful young woman who was totally out of out of his world and something he could only admire from a distance. That in itself is a very interesting use of music, juxtaposing classical 20th century and the folk music as a type of commentary on the scene. You've made quite a number of films, and we're only just hitting the highlights. But whereabouts do you start in the creative process? Is it with the concept, the story, the ending? Uh, is it a visual image? Like, do you see the picture before you start? How does it come together for you as an artist and director and a writer? Well, I'm not a particularly good writer. I am a very good storyteller, which is what a director needs to be. I've worked um, my entire career with three different writers. Uh, the first couple of two films I did with Bill Fruitt. And for since 1972, I've been making films, including my present one, with my writing partner, who now lives in the UK, Claude Harris. And then for three or four years in the 1970s and early 80s, I worked with a writer from Montreal, Terence Heffernan, who has since passed away. So I, I've always worked with writers uh, who are better than me. Uh, but I'm a good storyteller, and I understand what makes films work is conflict. You go to a movie the same way, reason you go to a hockey game, to see the Leafs play the Canadians. And it, the, con- the conflict doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be physical or bombs exploding. It could be emotional and uh, intellectual. But conflict is the essence of drama, period. No discussion. This interview is continued in the next episode of the podcast series. We're going to discuss Don's upcoming film, The Beach Boys, and Marshall McLuhan. I hope you'll join us. For more information, please visit the website canadianculturepodcast.com. I'm Rhea Beaumont, and thanks for listening.